Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We're seeing that more vaccine mandate deadlines are starting to approach very quickly. And police officers are continuing to resist these vaccinations, even as we see it becomes the number one killer for officers with gunfire coming in second. Cops are lagging behind the general public they serve, and for many of the same reasons we hear in other sectors. They don't want to be forced into it, and there's skepticism over safety. Many have also tried going another route, asking for religious or medical exemptions. And police unions are calling for more of these exemptions or weekly testing. For more on how police officers are resisting these mandates, we'll speak to Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. You have that startling statistic. As of last week, 420 law enforcement officers had died from COVID since the beginning of 2020, compared to 92 from gunfire. And, and that's just for police chiefs around the country. They're really worried about this. They want the rank and file to get vaccinated because they interact with the public a lot. A lot of them are dying. But what's happening on the ground is a different story. I mean, you see about half of 50 percent, some cases less than 50 percent of police departments are vaccinated. And that's compared to, you know, 70, 80 percent of the cities where they serve. And what you're seeing is resistance on a couple levels. You see cops who say they're skeptical of the side effects of vaccines, even though they've been approved by the FDA. You also see some cops who um, say they have religious um, objections to the vaccine. And what they've done in some places, you know, they've filed lawsuits. There's a big lawsuit in Los Angeles where they're contesting the vaccine mandate. There's a big lawsuit going on in Washington state where state troopers and firefighters and others are contesting the mandate. And, and what's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of action coming up because a lot of these police officers are now facing a deadline to get their shot by. You know, it's coming up in the end of September, October, early November in a lot of these cities. And there is the threat that they might get terminated if they don't get their shots. So there's a lot of negotiating behind the scenes to see if that's going to happen. But there's union officials who are warning that there's going to be a lot of officers who are going to be out of the job if they don't get their shot. That's one of the most curious things for me. And you spoke to an officer who had been on the force for 29 years and he just quit because he didn't want to get the vaccine. So I'm curious, and obviously this is a public safety thing too. Are we going to see a a mass exodus of police officers once this deadline hits and a lot of them don't want to get the shot? Police officers in general are pretty practical folks. I would predict that there's not going to be a big exodus, but I do think you're going to see some folks like this sergeant, retired sergeant who works as a reserve officer in San Jose, who we interviewed. And he said, you know, he quit. He could have stayed on, continued getting paid, but he quit rather than get the vaccine. And he said he was skeptical um, sort of of, the, of what, what's been said about the vaccine, even, even though, as I said, it's been approved by the FDA. He claimed there were other officers who had the same feelings as him but didn't want to speak out. He also said he quit so he could speak out. We had, I think we saw a sheriff's deputy who quit in um, Denver, in the Denver area as well. So it will be interesting to see what happens when those deadlines happen. You kind of alluded to some of those numbers. and In L.A., 47% of the police department is vaccinated compared to 68% of L.A. County residents. In San Diego, it's about 50% for cops, 78% for the public. So, you know, they are definitely lagging behind. What are we seeing in what 
you know, police unions are asking for, because a lot of them are asking for, okay, maybe they don't get the vaccine, but at least let us do weekly testing. So what are we seeing in these, um, in these lawsuits and then uh, on the religious exemption part of it too? Because if they've gotten other vaccines for other things, wouldn't that say something about this one? Like, well, you didn't refuse that one. Why are you refusing this one? Yeah, absolutely. Those are all really great questions. So to start off with the religious exemptions, you have over 3,000 Los Angeles police employees who say they intend to file for a religious or medical exemption. And that's a lot. That's out of 12,000 employees. So they're definitely trying to take advantage of that. And on that front, there's a um, conservative legal group that has backed their lawsuit in Los Angeles to sort of fight for the broadest religious exemptions they can get so that as many people can not get the vaccine. So that's what's happening on the legal front. And then in terms of um, what the unions are doing, they're a little less strident than, say, like a conservative legal group. But what they're negotiating for is the option to have their officers tested rather than get the vaccine and to have some sort of religious exemptions. But I would say um, a couple of the unions around the country have been somewhat strident in their calls and saying they don't want the mandate and nothing to do with it. But I would say others are encouraging their officers to get vaccinated and trying to work with cities. So it's kind of a mixed bag on the union front. In these major cities like New York, Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Jose, where they have these mandates in place, is there still that wiggle room to say, okay, you know, don't get it, but we'll uh, have to do the weekly testing or the mandates have kind of been set in place. That's what they got to settle for now. Yeah, in a few places they have it, but in most places they're still negotiating that. So we're going to find out in, like, in literally the next few weeks what's going to happen, whether they'll be allowed to be tested. I mean, one, one point we need to make here, too, is we um, didn't make the story, but we interviewed members of the public, too. For instance, uh, the head of the NAACP down in San Diego was the one who found out about this Facebook post of a San Diego officer who was complaining about he didn't want the vaccine and how he was going to stand up and rally and would never take a vaccine and rather lose his job. So she found that post and she forwarded it to the police department. They're investigating. And what she said, she said, you know, I have the right to know, if, you know, I'm being policed here in the city. I have the right to know if someone is vaccinated, wearing a mask. You know, there's a sense from the, some of the general public that they want officers to be vaccinated for their safety. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely going to be interesting how this shakes out. As I mentioned at the beginning, firefighters are also trying to fight a lot of these mandates, too. So we'll see how, how it works out in uh, these, uh, you know, in, in these cities where they do have mandates. Those dates are quickly approaching. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This week, we also saw that R&B singer R. Kelly was found guilty on all counts in his sex trafficking and racketeering trial. The prosecution called on 45 witnesses to make their case that he was a sexual predator that abused young women and underage girls for more than two decades. The defense tried to say that his victims were just groupies who tried to exploit him. With all these charges, he could face over 20 years in jail, and sentencing will happen sometime from now on May 4th. For more on what to know about the R. Kelly case, we'll speak to Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. When the feds want to get somebody, they spare no expense and effort and resources in doing so. And this was a good example of that. They got witnesses nationally from all over the world to come in and talk about their personal experiences with R. Kelly, whether it was being sort of shipped in from another state through the enterprise that he was running or just being charmed by him. 
it was key for the prosecution to bring in all these witnesses because the defense was arguing that they were being opportunistic, that these witnesses were just trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. Right. But you can maybe argue that with one or two. But when you have so many that they brought in, that defense failed, and that's why he was convicted. Yeah, and, you know, as you mentioned, they had so much testimony, uh, a bunch of really gross things, you know, dictating what they could eat, when they could eat, when they can use the bathroom, leave rooms or recording studios, all sorts of rules that they had to follow. They had a lot of video evidence, too, that the prosecution turned to, as I mentioned, some of the stuff that wasn't released to the public, but supposedly a video that they had showing Kelly grabbing a victim by the hair and forcing her to perform oral sex on another man. You know, they had so much in their corner with all this stuff. It was quite disturbing. And a lot of people were scratching their heads thinking, well, how, how did he get away with this for so many years? How come this wasn't prosecuted way back when? And, you know, the Me Too movement is very responsible, I think, for shining a spotlight on these types of cases and saying no longer are celebrities or people in the public eye that people look up to. They're not going to get a pass anymore. And uh, he definitely did not get a pass. He's yeah. looking at many, many years as a result of this. Yeah, definitely when it comes to Me Too in the music industry. I mean, this is one of the biggest ones that we've seen. Okay, so what did the defense do? As you mentioned, uh, they were trying to portray his victims as opportunistic groupies, let's say. The defense only called five witnesses. I mean, what, what were they trying to prove? How, how, how were they going to do it with so much evidence against them, let's say? Yeah, the defense knew going into this case that it was going to be an uphill battle. So all they were hoping to do realistically was get one or two jurors to not vote guilty and hope for a hung jury. That was best case here. And using the Lifetime documentary to be able to argue to the jury, look, this is why we're hearing this kind of testimony. These people like being on television, like being, you know, they they could have book deals coming. That's all the, the defense really had to go. Obviously, it didn't muster up enough to persuade those one or two jurors that they were looking for in this one. Part of this was racketeering, running a criminal enterprise. Well, how did that figure into this? What is that about? Right. So this is a very novel approach by the feds because typically racketeering, RICO charges are used uh, most commonly in gang cases, mafia cases, where you're showing that the crime that was perpetrated on the victim or victims was run by a bunch of people and it was run for a greater purpose rather than just for the sake of that actual crime itself. But it was to benefit an enterprise, a criminal enterprise. So in this case, Uh, The prosecution took that same platform and plugged it into R. Kelly's team and said, well, R. Kelly, he's got people under him, which are taking somehow getting minors to come from other states to perform sexual acts with him. This really does fit into like a criminal enterprise scheme. So it's not just for like that one prostitution, but this is more like for a, a, a constant sort of business, so to speak, to R. Kelly. This is what he was running. And it brings a lot more time in the case too in terms of what he's looking at in sentencing now yeah because that was a a huge part of it right obviously he was touring doing a lot of uh, performances all that and part of it was running people across state lines organizing for them to come to different parts of the country this was happening in new york but is he he's still facing charges in other places right right he's facing charges in other places and off the rico charge that you just said he's looking at a minimum of 20 years based on that alone And then when you add to it the two man act charges, which involved, which are separate counts, when you bring minors from out of out of the country to perform sexual acts, those two counts carry also 10 years each. So he's looking at 
at 40 years right now, wow. uh, just on the federal case alone. That's before we get yeah. to the state case that you just spoke about. Sentencing for what we're just uh, going through now doesn't uh, happen until May 4th, so there's still a lot of time before that's going to happen. The last thing I wanted to ask is that, you know, R. Kelly did not testify on his behalf throughout this. How might have that played a role in it? I think his defense team knew that once R. Kelly would get on the stand, he probably would be confronted with questions that he wouldn't have good answers to. Quite often, it, we, when we put a defendant on the stand, we're worried that the defendant's going to say or do something that's going to wreck the whole case. And that, that's very well could happen because he's sort of the star of the show, so to speak. So it was, it was a safe play. It was probably the right play. And I don't think, as a legal analyst and criminal defense attorney, that it, that it would have made it any better for him had he taken the stand. Well, we'll see what the sentencing holds for R. Kelly, R.B. R&B superstar, who's now been convicted of uh, sexual uh, sex trafficking and racketeering. So we'll see what the sentence is for that when it comes. Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Be well. Throughout the pandemic, we obviously saw tons of industries across the U.S. get thrown for a loop. And we wanted to check in on our furry friends and the people that help them stay healthy. The pandemic has caused all sorts of backlogs at veterinary offices. Vet staff have been increasingly stressed out as there have been spikes in demand for services, slowed down curbside protocols, labor shortages, and pets even having to be turned away in some cases. For what to know, as these backlogs seem to be sticking around for a little while longer, we'll speak to H.G. Watson, contributor to The Guardian. One of the doctors I spoke to for this piece, Dr. Tiana Tome, you know, she had told me when they, the pandemic first started, things were so quiet for them. You know, she was wondering if she was even going to be able to keep her business. But really rapidly, that started to change because just even the base being able to do the appointment took a lot slower because, of course, clients couldn't actually come in the room with their pets. Every time that they needed to talk to the owner, they'd have to make a cell phone call if they wanted approval to run a test anything like that. So that first domino falls, and then you complicate that, of course, with COVID protocols. The people in the clinics have to stay safe themselves. They have a risk as well as medical professionals. And then you also start dealing with the fact that a lot of the profession is actually women. A majority of vets and vet staff are women. They're dealing with childcare issues, all sorts of things. And then in some places, you're seeing spikes in increase of service. So there's still definitely a lot of debate about whether there actually was an increase in pet ownership during the pandemic. But certainly I think some places saw increases in adoption rates or in purchases of puppies that might have just been a short spike. But that meant there were a lot of first time dog owners, you know. And again, one of the other vets told me that with dog owners, uh, especially puppies, you know, I I think you know this yourself. They want to eat everything. They're constantly getting into trouble. Sometimes you might be taking them in like every two weeks, right? So that's a lot of appointments and a lot of strain on this profession. Yeah. And, you know, for the pet owners, obviously you see long appointment wait times. One thing that's kind of interesting, pets had to be turned away from certain veterinary offices. You know, that happened to me a couple of times where my regular vet couldn't see my dog. So we had to go to the urgent care. Obviously it's more expensive. (laughs) You know, there's all sorts of other things that go with that too, but you know, you get turned away from one place and you have to go find somewhere else in, in certain cases that can be deadly to a pet. Uh, I think you wrote an anecdotal story about, you know, somebody having to turn away a cat and, and they didn't make it through because they needed very intensive care. 
that was a very sad story that came from Dr. Lisa Kimball, who's based in Massachusetts. And what she had said was, you know, that they had this cat who, who needed 24-hour care, it needed intravenous fluids. And most general practitioner vets are not set up, you know, they don't have staff that stay overnight. They're not meant to do 24-hour care, right? They're there for wellness visits and for preventative medicine. So when she tried to get this cat into emergency hospitals in the area, both essentially said they didn't have the capacity either because of long wait times or because the hospital itself was full. And, you know, that's that's a really scary thing. You know, I, I definitely, I feel very lucky. You know, I am a pet owner myself. And during the pandemic, knock on wood, I haven't had to use any emergency services. But, you know, I certainly have been in situations with my dog where she just wasn't eating food one day. And it was like, all right, I want to get her into the vet sooner or later. But then all of a sudden, like for yourself, it was like, well, the vet can't see the dog for like a week. Yeah. And it, 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 it <laughs> You can't ask your dog, well, how are you feeling? Is your tummy hurting, right? You're, you're just trying to playing a guessing game, whether they're just, you know, not hungry that day or if something's really wrong. So it can be so stressful on both sides. Yeah, and that's the one, you know, you get that delay at your regular office. So then you go to those emergency services, even for very kind of more mundane things, uh, you know, generally. So, you know, that's a tough one for sure. And, and the backlogs, right? So this is kind of where we're still at. There's still a, this recovery period where, a lot of the veterinary offices are dealing with backlogs. They haven't been able to catch up just yet. I think that's definitely still a contributing factor in what's been driving the delays. Because many of the vets told me that because of the pandemic, people were putting off the wellness visit. So, you know, they maybe put back when the dog was going to get its or cat was going to get its yearly shots or things like that, right? But now they've realized, oh, we've got to do this. So now everybody's trying to make appointments as things are opening back up. And there's just not enough room. You know, obviously, this is all stressful stuff for our little furry loved ones and whatnot. But so it puts a big stress factor on the pet owners. Obviously, you're trying to get some care for the pet, but even for the veterinary staff, uh, you know, and a lot of them are animal lovers. That's why they got into the profession. And, you know, when they have to turn people away, people are jerks, <laughs> you know, with that staff, there's a lot of stress that's put on that staff. One of the things that really stood out for me for all the interviews that I did is, you know, every single person that I talked to, they would often talk about their, their patients as if they were their own animals. Anyone who is working as a veterinarian or the vet tech or the vet assistant, they're there because they love these animals and they, and they love and they want to do the best that they can for them. And on the other side, of course, you know, if you own a pet, you love them so much. But I think that for people who have been, you know, waiting weeks for appointments, who are also dealing with COVID restrictions, you know, there's a lot of stress. And unfortunately, some people are not handling that appropriately. And so if, if there's any huge thing I want people to take away from the story is, you know, to even if you're frustrated, even if you're worried about your animal, please take a breath and, and understand you're dealing with medical professionals who themselves are under a lot of strain and are really just trying to do the best for you and your pet. It's a very hard circumstance for everybody. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the vet staff you spoke to said someone threw a milkshake at the window. You know, it, it's very yeah. much a tough time. But yeah, definitely a lot of patients needed. And anybody that's a pet owner that's listening to this has gone through this over the pandemic. They know exactly what we're talking about. So hopefully we can continue to recover from all of that. H.G. Watson, contributor to The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.